And the Torah portion is Bamidbar, the beginning of the book of the book of Numbers. That's, that's where we are. And we'll start with our blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, source of life, who makes us holy with your mitzvot, and has given us the mitzvah of engaging in words of Torah. So, uh, as always, I had an enriching time reading different teachers and commentaries, preparing for uh, discussing the Torah portion with you. And so we're at the beginning of the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers, Hebrew name, is Bamidbar, in the wilderness. It covers, the book covers 39 years of wandering. Um, and... Um, its English name, Numbers, also has a um, origins in Jewish tradition because in the Talmud, it's also referred to as Sefer Hapkudim, which means the book of, 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 of counting or of accounts or of census um, because the book of Numbers begins with a census count and has another one later on. And... Um, uh, the the whole the whole parsha virtually is a census count of all twelve Israelite tribes. That is the males of fighting age, and we'll talk about that. And then all the Levites and their specific tasks as the priestly caste. Um, and uh, uh, it's 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 boring <laughs> to read it all through. It's a lot of numbers, okay, and a lot of names. So most commentators, and myself included, are drawn to the very beginning, as is appropriate. It's always appropriate to look at how a portion begins, and uh, uh, I want to focus on that today, uh, the beginning of the portion, rather than all the names and numbers that follow. And I want to explore a couple of um, key teachings that some of you may already be familiar with. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen. Here we go. So can everyone see a, a, a it says source sheet for Torah study? Is that visible to everybody? Okay, good. So here's how the portion begins. Yudhevave spoke to Moses in the Sinai Desert, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after the exodus from the land of Egypt, saying, take a census, se'u et rosh, okay, I'll get back to that, 
take a census of the whole Israelite community. Su et rosh kol adat Israel. So what does su et rosh mean? Literally, lift up the head of everyone. Like somebody took you by, you know, and uh, someone took you by, let me, let me get a look at you, that kind of thing. That's the way I think of it. Lift up the head of each, kol adat bnei all members of the community of Israel, each by their ancestral houses. Bimispar shemot, listing their names. Kol zachar, every male. Legul galotam, head by head. Okay, gulgal is a skull. It's a, it's your head. So we've got this interesting image of counting by lifting up and counting heads, right? One, two, three. So um, that's, that's the Hebrew. So first of all, we need to uh, acknowledge that what follows then is actually a census of the fighting forces of Israel as they prepare to go into the promised land. Things are going to go wrong, right? They're, they're going to, the children of Israel are going to mess up completely and they're not going to enter the promised land for another 40 years. But at this point in the story, they're still camped in the wilderness of Sinai by the holy mountain and they are getting organized for the trip, which is a 11 day trip or something like that. Um, and uh, that's, that's what's going on. The whole community, now that they have received the Torah, have built the tent of meeting where God's presence dwells, have set up the sacrificial system so that God's presence can dwell among them um, and have understood the rules of holiness, now organize themselves into essentially um, uh, um, troops, an orderly society that is going to, and, and military force that is going to be able to enter and take uh, control of the uh, promised land. That's what's going on in the plain meaning of the text. Um, so there are things missing here, which we'll talk about, because the plain meaning doesn't become the inherited meaning, right? The interpreted meaning is much more expansive. And I think we've all, you know, we should understand that that's how that's how we study Torah. We, we expand on the text. It says anyone who expands on the story of the going out of Egypt is to be praised. That's what the Haggadah says when we're telling the story of Passover. So Rashi, now, I'm, now this should be working, right? You can see the quote that's in sort of, um, got a little background color there, right? Where it says the Lord spoke in the Sinai desert. Great, it's working. Um, so Rashi, who I, um, is the commentator who is the most um, um, uh, well-known from the 11th century, his commentary becomes the most authoritative commentary on the Torah from the 11th century in Northern France. He's quoting earlier uh, interpreters, but he digests them and compacts them into very uh, 
um, uh, pithy uh, um, uh, commentaries. Uh, so first, the first phrase there, the Lord spoke in the Sinai desert on the first of the month saying, um, that's just his way of summarizing the entire passage we just read. So this is his commentary on that entire passage. Rashi asks the question, why does God count the children of Israel so often? Some of you have covered this, I'm sure, but we're, gonna, we're going to cover this ground and see what it has to say to us today. Because this isn't the only census in the Torah. There's a, there's a census in Exodus. There's, there are actually four times when census counts are taken in the Torah. It's like, uh, what's going on? Why do we need to be counted over and over again? Why does God say to Moses, we have, you have to be counted over and over again? And um, the answer that Rashi brings forward is because the children of Israel were dear to him. Chibatan. It came out of the mitoch chibatan lefanav monaltam kol sha'ah. Because they were dear to him, he counted them often. Uh, I like the Hebrew. Out of his deep love for them, he counted them every hour, it says. So what does that remind you of? You know, for me, uh, it's like when I'm a camp counselor or uh, uh, taking kids on a field trip or, you know, or I do it with the grown-ups too in Israel, on the Israel trips. It's like, I'm counting, counting, because they're dear to me. I don't want to lose anybody. Right, that's a beautiful image. And uh, I was also thinking about my kids, you know, when I just stare at them and they say, Dad, what are you looking at? I, you know, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> I love you so much. I just want to keep looking at you. You know, that sort of, that I want to, so for me, it's that image of a loving parent or caretaker or guide or teacher. Um, and then he elaborates. When they left Egypt, he counted them. When many fell because of the sin of the golden calf, he counted them to know the number of the survivors. When he came to cause his divine presence to rest among them, he counted them. On the first of Nisan, the Mishkan was erected, and on the first of Er, that's this passage, the second month, he counted them. So that's Rashi's beautiful explanation for why so much counting. Uh, it's out of love, counting your children. Um, okay, so let me unshare for a second. Okay, so I can see more of you. Hello. When I'm sharing, I only get to see a few of you. I just wanted to see more of you. Anyone have any uh, comments? Uh, or questions about that beautiful commentary? Oh, let me look in the chat just to see. I hadn't opened that up yet. Hold on. One sec. Oh, there we go. Make way for ducklings, Roberta Wall said. That's right. That's I love that it's out of love. 
Pardon I, me? I love that it's out of love. Mm-hmm. Um, I had actually not read that. It's, it just changes everything. Right. And then you have to think about the way it's happening in the Hebrew, which adds to it, which is he's lifting up every face and he's counting each head. So, uh, lifting up so that you're standing in your fullness, not sort of bowed down in shame or confusion or any of that. And Wendy, that's right. And Wendy uh, brings up the, um, the double meaning of the word count, which is crucial here. Um, uh, because it's the same in Hebrew as in English. Um, literally, one, two, three, so numbers, but it's important if, that we all know that we count, that we matter. Right? And it's the same when you count numbers or you give an account, that's telling a story. You know, the Hebrew word, lesaper, sipur is a story, but mispar is a number. So it seems clear to me that this interesting, this interesting phenomenon is true in both Hebrew and English, because to recount is to tell a story of what happened to you. You know, to recount is to count again. So it's numbers. It's all mixed together, and I I find it very um, uh, beautiful. Um, Rabbi, uh, just one sec. There's a comment. Why did God prefer Jews? They did nothing in Veda. Divine prefers devoted students. Roni, I'm just going to give a very short answer to that question. I don't take the Torah literally that there is an all-powerful God who chose one people in all the world. I treat this as the story of my ancestors from a time when there were no universal deities. Um, And uh, so I don't want to address that question further right now, but I'll be happy to have that conversation some other time. Uh, Yes, who was asking a question? Meg. Yes, Meg. Um, I just want to ask, at the beginning you said, was is the is the line count everyone name the men? Uh, the the line is, I'll put it up again. Thank you. Listing the names every male head by head. So when every, it says the whole Israelite community. Okay, so is it? Can we? Can we imagine as as contemporary feminist Jews today that he was counting the whole community, but he only needed the names of the men who were going to be going fighting? Oh, well, my own interpretation is the same kind of interpretation. This relates to Roni's question of what it means to be in an evolving understanding of who counts. Yeah. Okay, and this is the key point. In a patriarchal society, which uh, um, ancient Israel explicitly was, the key people who counted were the heads of households. Everyone else was under their care and protection, and the heads of households were always male. So um, that's patriarchy, right? So it's similar to all men are created equal. 
uh, in our um, uh, uh, Declaration of Independence. Like they meant men, you know, uh, because women were a subcategory under the male protection. They meant landowners because slaves and hired hands and all those, they were, they were part of that man's household, right? That's patriarchy. Our job is to understand that this text is an expansive text in its time, but it's not as expansive as we wanna be, as I wanna be, right? So I take, I, I do what I think is appropriate and I take the, um, what I consider to be the intention of the Torah uh, that makes, and how do I know? I don't know. Um, I am, I'm working on my assumptions. My assumptions are that since in chapter one of Genesis, it says that God made the human being male and female, God created them in the divine image that the concept in Judaism of Selim Elohim, that is, that every human being is made in the divine image, has to be ultimately, as we, uh, that, that, there's a, that there's a disconnect between um, uh, uh, saying that and then saying that only some people count. Uh, right? So, I want to take this idea, this fundamental principle of Judaism, that every human being is created in the divine image and therefore is of incalculable value and apply it to these texts so that I'm going to read this text in its place and time, I'm saying, was referring to the fighting forces who were male and who were of a certain age. And in a patriarchy, only the men's names are listed as the heads of each house, right? That's the way it was. But I want to supersede that with the prior assumption of the Torah that every human being is made in the divine image. And therefore, I want to take this beautiful teaching from Rashi in the 11th century that God is counting all of God's children because God loves them so much and assume that we can expand that to every person. Someone just, I wanted to share this video with you. I'll have to find it and send, send the link. Uh, now, who shared this with me? Uh, it was so beautiful. Okay, I didn't get it ready. Uh, it's a two minute video. Can you describe about, it? I'll search for it. Yes, it's a, it's a two minute video about a program in the IDF, in the Israeli Defense Forces where um, uh, 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 young Israelis with special needs um, who are developmentally disabled or delayed are, are allowed to enter the army. They didn't used to be. And in this program, they, are, they enter the army and they find out what these people can do to contribute and then they show this incredible ceremony of them being recognized and getting their berets um, after completing their basic training. And they are ecstatic. It is the best day of their life. And it's explicit that they've never felt included before. Okay, uh, uh, Bonnie, you raised your hand. Um, so I had a student 
a year ago who had this Parsha as for her bat mitzvah. And, you know, challenge, how do I engage this student with this, you know, boring Parsha? Um, so, so, so I have two separate things. One is, and I can't find it now, I remember reading somewhere that it was four generations from the 12, the brothers, Joseph and his brothers, but we know it's longer than that. It was 400 something years and there's now 600,000 people. So it wasn't four generations. And I did some research on that because I felt a little stupid. Um, and all I got was, yeah, that's a little bit of a conflict. So uh, if you could clear that up about what was, I, now I can't find where I read the four generations thing. Um, so if you can shed light on that, but I, I wanna share what I did with this student, which was, I pointed out to her that they were all tracing back to Joseph or to Benjamin or to Judah or Naphtali, et cetera. And, and so they, after 400 years, they still knew who they were. They still knew, even in slavery, they still knew who they traced back to because then they, they proceed to form a, a formation where they march to, to go to where they were going in their family groups. And so I challenged her and I said, how far back can you trace yourself? How many generations? Can you go four? Can you go more than that? Can you go 400 years? And so uh, being that we were working in the spring, I said at Passover, when you see your grandma, now make a, make a date with her to do this. So you're not just overwhelming her when she's in the kitchen. Sit down and ask her to tell you, okay, so grandpa came from here and great grandpa this and this, and take notes. And she put together, and her grandmother helped her put together a family tree. And it, it was just, I was just happy to have landed on a way to try to make this relevant to her. So I just wanted to share that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, the, the numbers, the number here is going to add up to 603,550 or something like that. Where did all these people come from? We cannot take numbers literally in the Torah. We just can't. It's not a history book in that sense. It's a book of lore and of sacred stories where it, it, it's not going to be, it's not a database. And um, uh, it also, these stories, the best we can guess historically, were put together hundreds of years after the wilderness experience. Uh, and so um, we, we, there will be many, many Torah commentators who wanna harmonize all the discrepancies in generations. I mean, here it says you're going to be 400 years in Israel, in, in Egypt. There it says you're going to be 230 years. Which is it? And um, you can study all of that harmonizing attempts, but I don't really, I'm not really that concerned about it because I'm not looking for numerical accuracy in, in these stories. I'm looking for what they're trying to teach us. And once again, I'll tell you that Torah means teaching and is a book of 
instructing us in how to live. And so the, it's sort of a side project to try to harmonize all the contradictory numbers that you encounter in Torah. Um, but in terms of a family tree, well, sometimes it's gematria, but gematria is a fanciful activity. Um, and gematria is there to kind of spin out new connections and new meanings. What I've learned as much as I can is that the numbers are symbolic mostly, but that we don't necessarily know what the symbolism meant to ancient Israel, right? I've speculated a lot on the number 40 and written about it because what's 40? And I don't want to go off in that direction. It's clearly an important number. And why seven? Why is seven the motif that dominates the Torah? It's not because the world was created in seven days. The world was created in seven days because seven is a, a, an essential, uh, fundamental organizing principle for the creators of the Torah. So again, I, I can't do this in a systematic way. Um, I just kind of keep groping around for, I wonder what this number means, and then seeing what I can maybe find out. But I don't claim uh, final authority on anything with numbers in the Torah. All right. Um, so I want to go back to this idea of people count, that you lift up their head, and uh, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, which in Hebrew is known as Sefer Shmot, ironically, the book of names, um, what happens in Exodus, in the beginning of the book of Shmot, is that Pharaoh describes the children of Israel as a swarm of beasts and reptiles and wild animals. He uses the, he uses the language of of swarming. The people are too numerous. They're swarming over the land. They're going to overwhelm us. And he doesn't, he treats them not as, once again, Pharaoh does exactly what the Jewish tradition says you don't do. He doesn't lift them up head by head. He doesn't even know their names. He treats them as units of productivity, right? He reduces them to numbers. And we are certainly, you know, the example of the concentration camp inmates is our 20th century pharaoh in Egypt, right? Uh, uh, where people were literally reduced to numbers on their arms. This is the, this is, that's what happened. It's the opposite of what the Torah intends. And I'll put up a, a comment in a minute from the Mishnah. Um, in the present moment, oh, Gail, I'll recognize you in a moment. In the present moment, we are watching numbers numbers rise of deaths, how many 
thousands and thousands of people who've died being treated as numbers, as statistics. That's important. But if it's not undergirded by the, remem by the remembrance, the awareness that each of these people who died from the virus is an individual, beloved, beloved, then once again, we are falling into that pharaonic consciousness. And our, it's obvious that our president, that is his primary form of perception. Um, uh, and uh, it needs to be combated. And it, you know what, I don't need to say more about that. So Gail, what did you want to say? So I just wanted to add in regard to the question of lineage, that the generation of Moses and Korach, his cousin, his first cousin, um, they are the great-grandchildren of Levi. So they're all presumably the great-great-grandchildren of Jacob. And so when they're under their banners as part of their identity and they're being named is also this direct line back for all of them that I think, and I know the numbers there, it's, it's whatever it is. But that piece, I think, is, is important to know. And it's, it's buried, but it's there. Thank you. And Deborah is that's, saying... That's all. Oh, thank you, Gail. Deborah is reminding us that the, the AIDS quilt was an attempt to celebrate the identities of people who died as humans, not as numbers. Same thing. Exactly. Exactly. So let me put this document on show, show how a, a famous text that some of you already know. Um, I'll put it at the top of the screen. In the Mishnah, second century, in a long passage, there's this famous one that says, the first human was created singly, Adam, to proclaim the greatness of the Blessed Holy One. For when a human being stamps many coins with one die, each coin is alike to the other. But when the king who is the king of kings, the Blessed Holy One stamps all of humankind in the image of the first human, each one is unique. And uh, this is part of a passage in the Mishnah, which I teach frequently, where witnesses how witnesses are to be exhorted if they are testifying during a murder case uh, to remember the uniqueness of every individual, both the victims and the perpetrators. Because then it says, and remember, one who saves a single life saves an entire world, and one who destroys an a life, a single life destroys an entire world. So this is the... Um, this is where this principle of everyone is created in the image of God develops to in Judaism, that we mean everyone. And so with that principle in mind, the idea of being counted uh, by, as who we are with our head lifted up and being recognized for our individual identity as well as our place in the collective, is a fundamental Jewish idea. So then I went to 
uh, Rabbi, Jonathan, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs again, who had another beautiful take on this Parsha. Um, and uh, he's asking the question, which is that this Torah portion, Bamidbar, always falls on the Shabbat right before Shavuot, which is next Thursday night, the festival of receiving the Torah. And um, so if the rabbis, or now organizing the calendar so that one Torah portion always coincides with a particular holiday is not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of machinations that make the Jewish liturgical calendar quite, quite an extraordinary feat of uh, jigsaw puzzling, piece, jigsaw puzzle pieces. <clears throat> so the question that, arises is why is Bamidbar, why did the rabbis organize Bamidbar in the world, this portion to coincide with the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai? Always. Now, we don't know exactly why. It's the question that animates the conversation. Oh, maybe this, maybe that. I wonder if it's this. And it's really, I might say, fun. That's what's fun about this, is you try to figure it out and come up with a good answer to the good question. So there are several important answers to the question that I've encountered. One that we've talked about is the rabbis are very interested in the fact that the Torah is given in the wilderness and not in the city or in the town or in the promised land but given in a place that's um, undomesticated. That's a whole fascinating course of discussion. But uh, Rabbi Sachs takes it in a different way today. And you can tell he's English, he's British because of the way he spells words. Uh, here's, here's the quote from his, his uh, commentary. The sages understood that something profound was born at Mount Sinai. And this has distinguished Jewish life ever since. It was the democratization of knowledge. Literacy and knowledge of the law was no longer to be confined to a priestly elite. For the first time in history, everyone was to have access to knowledge, education, and literacy. As it says in Deuteronomy, the law that Moses gave us is the possession of the assembly of Jacob, Morasha Kehilat Yaakov, the uh, inheritance of the entire community, the whole assembly, not a privileged group within it. The symbol of this was the revelation at Mount Sinai, the only time in our history when God reveals God's self, not only to a prophet, but to an entire people who then three times signaled their consent to the commands and the covenant. So Rabbi Sachs is making the connection between how everyone is counted in this Torah portion and how everyone heard the voice at Mount Sinai. So if you're not familiar with, with, the, with this piece of Torah lore, it's really important. There is only one moment in the entire Torah when the entire people hear the commandments, and that is at Mount Sinai. The rest of the time, it's God said to Moses, tell the people. 
but Mount Sinai is the pinnacle of our connection to God, our revelation, because we are all addressed. <clears throat> Once again, um, uh, it's every, everybody matters in creating <clears throat> a holy community. Without each person feeling like they too are a, um, um, a receiver, a vessel, a vehicle for the holiness of the entire community, what you have then is an autocracy. You can't, where, where the all the people who are part of the whole are not actually empowered to maintain the holiness of the community. And so when you are not empowered, you do not participate, right? That's how you, you then have to be, as in Egypt, forced into labor. Um, when you have a community where everyone understands that they are part of a, of a, of a covenant, of a sacred arrangement for the upholding of the, of the entire congregation, then everyone participates not out of being forced, but out of feeling empowered to participate. Uh, and so he makes this beautiful point and then goes on to bring texts that I want to show you um, that track this idea of everyone knowing, everyone being educated, that tracks straight through the Torah and Jewish history. In Deuteronomy, it says, at the end of every seven years in the sabbatical year, during the festival of tabernacles, that is Sukkot, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law, this law, the laws, uh, um, the translation of Torah. You shall read this Torah before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Public reading, public teaching, not esoteric knowledge not the province of only the literate class. It was something that everyone was supposed to know. And all your children shall be learned of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Isaiah, uh, students, learned is uh, also lamed. Then in the um, fifth century BCE, after the return from Babylonian exile, Ezra, the scribe, the priest, on the first day of the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah, Ezra the priest brought the Torah before the community, men and women, to all who were capable of comprehension. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from first light until midday, to the men and the women, to all who were capable of comprehension. The entire people attended to the reading of the Torah. 
It's another beautiful image. And then several centuries later, the Babylonian Talmud discusses, listen to this one. This is, we could spend the whole time on this, but I was very taken by it. Truly the name of that man is to be blessed. Who? Joshua ben Gamla. For but for him, the Torah would have been forgotten from Israel. For at first, if a child had a father, his father taught him. And if he had no father, he did not learn at all. They therefore ordained that teachers should be appointed in each prefecture and that boys should enter school at the age of 16 or 17. They did so, but if the teacher punished them, they used to rebel and leave the school. You can't start with a 16 year old, it says. I like that passage. Eventually, Joshua ben Gamla came and ordained that teachers of young children should be appointed in each district in each town, and that children should enter school at the age of six or seven. Okay, so on the one hand, this is, you know, classic indoctrination. You got to get them young. Okay. But it all depends what you indoctrinate them with. You're trying to indoctrinate them with the Torah here. And so uh, apparently Joshua ben Gamla, as Rabbi Sachs says, was the first person to institute universal elementary education back in the second or third century. Uh, way before public education became an idea in uh, modern times. Uh, and we have, uh, no, before the second or third century, I'm, no, this is back in the first century because Josephus writes about it in the first century and says, should any one of our nation be asked about our laws, he will repeat them as readily as his own name. The result of our thorough education in our laws from the very dawn of intelligence is that they are, as it were, engraved on our souls. And Rabbi Sachs makes this beautiful, beautiful connection between everyone counting and therefore everyone getting educated. It's really beautiful. And it, we know that education is one of the sort of central pillars of Jewish culture and history. And so then in the Middle Ages, Maimonides says, with three crowns was Israel crowned, the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. The crown of priesthood was conferred on Aaron and is hereditary. The crown of kingship was conferred on David and therefore is hereditary. But the crown of Torah is for all Israel. Whoever desires it, let them come and take it. Isn't that, a, I just love that. I just love that. And again, it's, um, for me, it's not a stretch anymore to say, and now in the 21st century, we know that that means everybody, whoever, desires. Uh, because for me, that is consistent with the core principle of the Torah, that every human being is made in the divine image. And so Rabbi Sachs ends his talk, his piece with this paragraph. I want to read his words again. I believe that this is one of Judaism's most profound ideas. Whatever you seek to create in the world, start with education. If you want to create a just and compassionate society, start with education. If you want to create a society of equal dignity, 
ensure that education is free and equal to all. That is the message the sages took from the fact that we read Bamidbar before Shavuot, the festival that recalls that when God gave our ancestors the Torah, he gave it to all of them equally. Uh, thanks for letting me share that. I, I'm uh, such a big fan of, uh, of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Uh, would anyone like to, uh, ah, let's see, is that why education is important in most Jewish families? Absolutely. In fact, um, let me say something about that. Because Judaism is the pe we are the people of the book, because Hebrew is considered to be a language of power and holiness, because it says God created the world by speaking, Judaism, and because we, out, we, we banned idolatry and elevated the written word as the vehicle of teaching, Judaism enshrined literacy and education as not just an important quality, but as actually the pathway to, to godliness. So that in the 19th century, as Jews started to be permitted to um, leave the ghetto and enter at first European society and American society, uh, this quality of education being the highest value translated into secular education. It was, it's a cultural touchstone. And what had been practiced in religious studies now began to be practiced in the modern secular world. And so even Jews, as we know, who uh, are not, uh, many, many Jews who are not uh, uh, in any way religious, oh. enshrine education, enshrine literacy, enshrine intellectual accomplishment as central to being Jewish. And it is. In fact, it's one of the things I love about being Jewish, that I was raised in a culture that elevates learning to be a prime value. I cherish it. Yeah, Meg would like to share. I was reading in the Sidur um, Sim Shalom. Yes. About uh, Shavuot. And I just want to read this one paragraph. Can you hear me okay? We hear great. Great. Rabbi Simcha Bunam of um, Sisha asked, why do we call Shavuot the time of the giving of the Torah, Zman Matan Torah and not the time of receiving the Torah, Zman Kabbalat Torah Tenu. And he answered his own question. The giving of the Torah took place long ago in the month of Sivan, but the receiving of the Torah takes place every day. His disciple, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kutz added, what was given is the same for everyone, but what is received varies according to each person's capacity. Thank you. They are echoing much older Midrashim about how it, what happened at Mount Sinai. How could a whole people hear God's word? It's not a loudspeaker. It's, it's like, what does it mean to hear God speak? And so one of the primary metaphors that gets used is that everyone heard it in the language they knew, 
in the capacity that they had to understand at the level that they were at, um, including babies in the womb, it says. Uh, and uh, that's a, a, so it's a giving to us, and then we each receive what we're able to receive. And my own take on that is that therefore, my own fragmentary knowledge is by definition insufficient. I have to study Torah with a whole bunch of people so that I can hear all the different things that people heard. And then if we can collect them, we'll start approximating the multivalent, ever-changing, turn it and turn it meaning of what spiritual wisdom is trying to give us. Uh, so thank you, Meg. Wendy wrote, I also think that education travels with the person whether or not you have a building. A person can be taught by people other than teachers, and this would be important as they were continually exiled. Thank you, Wendy. Yes. There's a famous, uh, it's not that famous, it's famous to me, a beloved uh, paragraph by Abraham Joshua Heschel, who says, um, everything depends on the person who stands in front of the classroom. In this case, you know, think of it in a more broad sense. The teacher is not an automatic fountain from which intellectual beverages may be obtained. The teacher is either a witness or a stranger. To guide a pupil into the promised land, the teacher must have been there himself. When asking himself, do I stand for what I teach? Do I believe what I say? He must be able to answer in the affirmative. And this was the phrase that captured me. What we need more than anything else is not textbooks, but text people. It is the personality of the teacher, which is the text that the pupils read, the text that they will never forget. I just really love that quote. Gary Kelman wrote, interestingly in Tsarist Russia at the time of the pogroms, late 1800s, the church used this against us by teaching that anyone who learned to read and write, not from the priests, got their education from the devil, hence fostering a basis for anti-Semitism. Yes, I'm familiar with that. Each at her capacity, many ways to reach divine. That is the point. That is the point. God somehow, we're all made in God's image, and he, in, herein lies an astonishing paradox and spiritual mystery. We are each uh, an expression of the divine, and we are each unique in how that expression manifests in the world. So by definition, each of us has our own path to walk. And by definition, none of our paths can be complete, the complete knowledge of God, because everyone else has a different, literally a different perspective on the infinite source of life. And so we live within that paradox of having to trust ourselves and the wisdom we have thus, thus far gleaned from life, and then also being utterly humble about what we know at the same time. Uh, and so, Ellen Weaver says, every year standing again at Sinai is a new opportunity, which we love to reflect on because we're not the same exact place we were a year ago in our own perspective. And so we, have, we get to encounter the light 
anew. We get to encounter it all once again and receive it once again. It's a beautiful holiday. Uh, Helen Gold would like to say something. Didn't, um, how, um, could you comment on how the Hasidic movement, uh, this was a very basic to the formation of their ideas about how you could di directly learn uh, what God is saying to you without the interference of uh, the, the rabbis or the, um, they, it was direct, you to God, God to you, that's how they, God was before your eyes all the time. And their learning was, that was the very basis of why they formed their Hasidic movement, I think. To get a more immediate experience of, of divine presence, yeah. So uh, I see this, Helen, as a continually swinging pendulum um, where we know we have to learn from our elders. We know we have to, you know, there's, you don't get, without good teachers, without good guides, without good information, uh, we're, 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 we're very limited. And yet, when the kind of reverence for authority uh, becomes too, um, uh, swings too far in one direction, we've lost the spontaneity out of which insight and new learning come. So I see it, Helen, they weren't rejecting authority in that sense. They were trying to swing the pendulum back so to recover a sense of spontaneity and immediacy that so much of education loses, as we all so sadly know. And so what, again, what we're dealing with are polarities that have to be constantly kind of dancing with each other, balanced with each other, and there's no fixed point. We're, we're always going to be making corrective maneuvers. That's how I see it. Uh, okay, so Bonnie had to go, and Cynthia said goodbye, and now it's time for us. Yes, and bhakti is the, that's right, devotion. Let's do another course sometime comparing different religious vocabularies. We're all, as far as I can tell, all spiritual systems are coming up with vocabularies to describe the same phenomena that we're exploring as human beings. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to do. Um, great. One river, many wells, one mountain, many paths. All true, all true. And I'm still convinced we need each other. Um, that, uh, that the solo journeyer, um, there are some, there are some. I like doing it the Jewish way, which is all mixed up with people. Um, that's, the, that's the Jewish way. There can be other ways as well. Thank you. Thanks for letting me share all those goodies.